Hello, my name is David Reeside, and this is Developing Carbon Stories, a podcast about the project developers creating the most innovative and impactful carbon projects in the world. Each episode, we speak with an entrepreneur from a different part of the carbon ecosystem and talk about their journey so far and how they're continuing the climate fight. On this episode, we're speaking with Greg Murray, CEO and co-founder of Coco Networks, a climate tech company based in Kenya that's working to introduce cleaner cooking technologies and ultimately transform people's lives in the world's fastest growing cities. Greg Murray, thanks so much for joining us on our inaugural episode of Developing Carbon Stories, um, where we have carbon project developers come on and and tell their stories um, behind the carbon credits that we use to um, achieve our, our climate ambitions. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, David, for having me. Now, you've come from an interesting background, uh, started off in, in finance and accounting um, in Australia, and, and you've found yourself now in, uh, in the climate change space in, in Africa. Um, how, did you, how did you get to where you are? Um, what led you into the climate change space? Yeah, I was one of those, um, uh, I managed to get a scholarship when I was a sort of a kid uh, working at uh, one of the big accounting shops um kpmg and and i was in this um i was in this uh, sort of private family business type division um privately held companies two to 50 million dollar revenue where we did all of the audit accounting tax advisory etc and i was just you know 18 year old in a suit um doing university at nights working you know one of the grunts and uh one of our um clients uh, had a film studio um uh, their immigrants to australia from you know, i was based in sydney uh, and uh, and I got a call. I used to do I used to do sort of menial work on their their you know family office basically um, as the outsourced accountants and uh, and quite an elderly lady um, uh, uh, Jewish origin uh, the, the film studio founder was uh, had been in Auschwitz in fact tattooing everything uh, and uh, and they built this amazing uh, animation studio anyway she called me up the. The, the, it's a hubby and wife duo that built this. She pulled me up one day and said, Greg, I want you to do some research and build me a financial model. Um, I said, sure, sure. You know, how can I do that? Yeah, how can I help? And uh, she said, look, I want to understand um, if I can uh, reforest a large area. I can buy some land and plant a forest and, uh, and use uh, carbon credits to pay for it. Uh, and this was in 1997. You know, uh, Kyoto Protocol had just happened. Um, very forward-thinking uh, lady, uh, and uh, and I hadn't heard about any of this because um, I'm a, as an 18-year-old, you know, thinking about you know, drinking beer and, and uh, working hard and trying to make money, these sorts of things. And I, I uh, so I started reading about it and uh, and and got you know, pretty interested in the whole uh, intersect between um, between environmental markets, uh, development, uh, sort of technology, and um, you know, and, and business. Um, and uh, and that was yeah that was the that was the start of a very very long journey um, that's been mostly emerging markets in focus but yeah it was that it was that moment um, where I sort of became aware of um, the possibility that uh, that this this externality um, that I was sort of vaguely aware about as a bad thing might you know you know really went deep into the rabbit hole of of um, of, of environment and then and then potential uh, way that capitalism as a tool might be used to solve for environment rather than just destroy it. That's basically the origin of it. Yeah, right. And it's interesting you, you bring up that concept of, of conscious capitalism. I, I read an, art, an article where you were interviewed um, and you, you described cocoa as a form of uh, socially conscious capitalism. Um, 
I guess seeing as this is carbon focused um, podcast, I mean, would you put carbon markets under that category as well? I think that the carbon markets um, uh, have the potential to drive amazing impact um, and to create um, outcomes that wouldn't be possible otherwise at scale that you know enable the green industries of the future to be built to enable um, uh, conservation and restoration to occur at a scale that would not otherwise be possible that's the that's the hope that's the idea the promise of carbon markets um, perhaps it hasn't always been implemented in that manner um, uh, you know carbon 1.0 and now this um, uh, this sort of latest um, you know interest globally in the markets but um, I think that remains the you know if you go to the sort of the philosopher architects of the Kyoto Protocol I think um, that's that was in their mind um, certainly that was what inspired me uh, uh, early on about the potential to use these markets to create these sort of outcomes particularly in particularly in emerging markets and places that are bearing the brunt of climate change but didn't actually uh, historically uh, cause it um, that's yeah that's the hope uh, I, I believe that we're living that hope you know we're we're, we're real we're genuine um, we're making it happen but yeah I, I, I can't say uh, that's the case for the overall markets yeah definitely I mean it seems like cocoa uses carbon credits more as a as a tool to achieve to achieve a broader outcome so I mean cocoa is an interesting an interesting case I mean it has it's an extensive operation you know in-house it has you know, manufacturing distribution you know infrastructure community engagement as well as carbon credits um mm -hmm. you know i guess it, it's such a highly integrated organization i mean was this always the goal when you cope when you co-founded coco or was it born more out of necessity you know why are developing countries called developing countries because a lot of the actual underlying systems and markets haven't been developed it'd be nice um It'd be nice if you had an ecosystem of subcontractors that you could just, you know, just just focus on doing one thing and sub out the rest. Um, you know, MBA theory from the West is that that's you know you should focus on just doing that. But um, as you get into um, you know less developed markets, um, you find that you need to actually um, build not just a, a niche piece of the puzzle. You can't stand on the shoulders of giants. You've got to build the entirety of the puzzle. And and uh, and so for us, you know, we're building. We're building an entirely new industry, which is around um, you know, actually solving uh, the, the the dirty cooking fuel uh, crisis, right? Through replacing uh, the dirty cooking fuel industry, which is in Africa alone, it's it's thirty billion dollars that's spent on deforestation-based charcoal. It's an industry that that um, engages you know millions of people, right, and is massively destructive. You know, in, in order to solve that energy industry, that dirty dirty fuel industry. You need to replace the fuel with a clean fuel at some scale. There hasn't been a new mass market consumer fuel introduced in Africa for over a hundred years, right? Uh, you know, to do it, you, you need to be combining customized technology, customized infrastructure, customized policy, you know, institutional capital, and a whole lot of hard work. It's not easy to solve this problem. You know, we had um, 500 staff before we had revenue five years into our existence. You know, it's a sort of, um, you know, deep tech type uh, bet that you don't get usually permission to build in this part of the world. You know, it's a sort of R and first principles R&D that goes on in a 
place like um, you know, London or Sydney or San Francisco, but but ultimately we said let's let's go let's go really do it. let's build our R and D facilities in East Africa and fundamentally see what's required uh, and 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 have a very very um, open scope, not sort of rule anything out. And that meant, that means we, we we write code, but we also write legislation. You know, we design hardware and we go and we manufacture it in house in our own, in our own facilities. Would it be nice to contract manufacture? Sure, but when you're building a a new industry, um, you know, you've got to provide a take or pay contract to the contract manufacturer. And when the demand's uncertain because it's a new industry, you can't really do that, right? So, so you know, we've, we've found that we've had to, um, we've had to sort of just build each of the building blocks. Um, uh, thankfully, we, by, by partnering with the um, liquid fuels infrastructure owners, um, we, we don't have to build that. We don't have to put the capex into building that. The, you know, the arteries for liquid fuels distribution do exist um, on the continent. And we're able to partner with those infrastructure owners um, and, and make that happen at scale, uh, and that makes the solution low cost as well. But yeah, it is. It is a. Um, and we have twelve hundred staff today. Um, uh, it was. It was three years ago. It was, it was hundred staff. Um, you know, three years from now, it'll be something like five to six thousand staff. So we're in this sort of very, very significant growth um, curve right now, and and uh, you know, and it's complex, but um, but it's working, and it's actually delivering the outcomes on the ground, which is just a whole lot of block and tackle hard work turning up every day by our commercial and operating teams, our software teams, our product teams, our manufacturing teams, our policy teams. Um, that's what's required to actually solve the charcoal cooking fuel crisis. Mm -hmm. And so this, I mean, this charcoal cooking fuel crisis, the, uh, the dirty fuel crisis in Africa, particularly at the moment, I suppose, in Asia as well in some areas, um, you've come to that area from, you know, as you would put it, the, putting it in the, the business case for, for someone's tree planting operation in, in 1997. Um, <laughs> I'd be interested to see or to hear about how you, you sort of heard about this significant challenge. And then I guess for Coco, it's also an opportunity, um, how you sort of came about to be in, in this particular niche of, of climate change development. About 15 years ago, I set up a, a um, with a, with a business partner, another one of the Coco co-founders, I set up a, a clean technology venture investment group, um, which is the founding investor in Coco, uh, and that was reflecting on about two years of um, traveling around uh, in in sort of the 2003 to 2005 timeframe, traveling around uh, Latin America, Asia, uh, Africa, um, and and really going deep on on um, on this intersection between uh, environment, business, technology, and development. Yeah, and and uh, and looking at um, looking at interesting um, businesses that we might invest into. It was during that time in southern and eastern Africa that I stumbled over charcoal. Um, it's a it's it's a huge industry. It's all informal. Um, unlike you know deforestation in, in in say the Amazon is is um, you know is very much a sort of a um, you know soybean and, and, and cattle phenomenon, right? And we're all familiar with that. We all you know we all um, uh, you know understand the big corporates who's you know who's and our own our own appetite for um, you know, beef and soybeans that's, that's driving um, that sort of uh, industrialized deforestation by large companies. Um, you know, in Indonesia, it might be palm oil, right? And so we, we get, we get um, commodity supply chain driven deforestation. Um, but as, as folks in, in, in Australia, UK, Europe, um, you know, America, um, you know, that haven't spent too much time um, on the ground in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, 
um, you know, it's 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 a little bit of invisible of a market, this charcoal market, because it's informal. It's not. It's not. There's no big charcoal player that's that's uh, you know doing industrialized um, you know charcoal. Can, you know, it's, it's 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 literally tens of millions of people chipping away at the edges every single day in order to feed um, the demand of the cities. It's urban demand. It's not rural demand. It's urban demand, um, and and this is a short-term um, income earning activity by taking out the trees, carbonizing the wood and having these, you know, the, 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 the charcoal on the bikes, on the, on the trucks going into the cities and then it's informally retailed. But, you know, during that time back then I was, I was saying, geez, this is a, because you, you, you travel around in some of these rural areas and there's, there's no agricultural commodities coming out. The only thing that's coming out is bags of charcoal and the scale of it. It's like, okay, where's, where's it going? You know, you know, what's the price of this, this energy commodity? And so literally just started measuring it, you know, hiring a, a local guy to go and to go and actually understand what, what things cost, you know, what is the retail price, hiring scales, right, undertaking to the household energy service, trying to understand like what is this market and then running back of the envelope, you know, calculations to try and figure out, okay, what is this on a per household basis? And it's it's nuts what people are paying for for this basic, uh, you know, for, 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 putting, uh, for putting energy uh, heat into food. Um, and, and so, and then you blow that out, and then you look at the um, look at the impacts of it. It's it's uh, you know six hundred thousand deaths per, per per year on, on the continent. It's a billion tons of carbon emissions. It's it's two million hectares annually of deforestation just for charcoal. You know it's it's nuts, um, and it's insane. In fact, you know there was a there was a, uh, but it's it's not it's not new. It's just that there hasn't been um, the investment in um, you know a, a technology that's designed for um, the price points that is required that you need to hit to deal with the poverty levels, right? That's the problem. Um, you know, there was a charcoal cooking fuel price crisis in the city of London in the late 1400s. Really? Uh, yeah. So, so charcoal was what everybody used, mineral, not mineral coal, but charcoal from the forest. And the whole of England was denuded of trees. And, um, and the only reason that, that the, 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 you know, the only reason that was sold was the discovery of mineral coal in the ground. This is pre-industrial revolution, pre-steam engines. People switched from, uh, there was an energy transition from above ground you know, coal from a forest to below ground mineral coal, right? And then there was another energy transition that happened when, when oil was discovered, you know, Rockefellers and so on in, in America, right? And, and everyone called it the new light back then, but you look from a volumes perspective, kerosene was actually used more for, for cooking. And so there was this switch from mineral coal to kerosene for cooking. And so, you know, you, you've seen these switches over time as company, it's countries rather modernized. And, and, uh, and that's going on in, in different stages at different rates in Africa at the moment. But, you know, fundamentally, you've got this um, sort of hard reality that, um, you know, that, that there's only three, there's only three fuels that have any sort of market share uh, in the, you know, it's, it's a $47 billion market is the cooking energy market in urban sub-Saharan Africa. That's the World Bank's numbers. 30 billion of that's charcoal. So it's the vast majority. And then there's a little bit of action in the rich end of the, of the, of the spectrum, which is fossil LPG, right? And that might be about 5 billion. And then there's a little bit of action at the bottom end um, uh, uh, being kerosene. And that's largely in places that have subsidized the hell out of kerosene, um, like, in Niger like in Nigeria, um, or places where the, um, where the deforestation, the forests have run away to the extent that the London price crisis of late 1400s has now hit that particular city and people have been priced out of charcoal and are now going into a lower cost alternative. And 
you know, if you think about the three forms of energy, right, there's a gas, there's a solid, there's a liquid, right? Uh, it's all portable energy in these markets, right? It's, it's, um, it's, it's portable gas. There's no pipes going into your home. Um, the electricity is generally not stable enough to enable electric cooking and the appliance efficiency equation doesn't really work if you're getting really cheap appliances for electric, right? And so it just the cost of cooking with electricity is quite high. So, so, so you end up with a, a portable gas, a portable solid and a portable liquid the um, the the fuel that wins from a straight cost perspective is the portable liquid, and our simple thesis some years ago, really a decade ago now, was um, what about a more sensible liquid than kerosene, right? What about a liquid that's uh, renewable uh, that can be produced sustainably at scale that's already a large market? Um, what about a liquid that can that can leverage the existing arteries for liquid fuel distribution? And what about a liquid that creates an emissions reduction outcome that enables us to leverage carbon to fundamentally lower the cost of the solution to consumers, right? They were the set of theses. What, what, what is it going to take to do that? And then we did a proof of concept. Um, uh, and then based on that proof of concept, uh, we, we said, okay, we, we, we see this clearly demand. Let's go and build and spend, yeah, what ended up being five years building the hardware, the software, the, the legislation, building our factories uh, before we found, finally turned on the, the, um, the network operator, that's our um, parlance. So we have a, a, a network operator in the city of Nairobi, the, the whole metro area of Nairobi. We turned on that network, similar to the way you turn on a mobile network in Q4 2019, five years into Coco's founding and, uh, and commenced earning revenue by retailing uh, super clean uh, liquid bioethanol at scale. Uh, and, and now, you know, two and a half years later, we're, we're, at, we're at about 20, 22% of all Nairobi homes cook with us every day. And we're scaling vertically, we're rolling out across other cities, we're investing in new countries as well. But it's, it's been that sort of journey. But essentially, yeah, long time, you know, it's now um, 17 years ago that I stumbled across um, uh, the, the charcoal markets in Southern Eastern Africa and, and just got OCD focused on, on um, you know, how stupid it is that in this day and age that, that this is the way that, that we, we you know, humans are still cooking like it was in the, in the late 1400s. There's got to be a more sensible way to put energy into food um, that can solve for the you know, affordability challenge. That was basically the, 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 the genesis. Yeah, okay. That's fascinating. I mean, so would you put down the, the lack of solutions before COCO, the lack of effective solutions in this space, just because of the lack of awareness, particularly in more developed countries, with this, the concept of people still cooking food with charcoal. Obviously, it seems quite um, like a very foreign concept to someone growing up in you know, Sydney or in Melbourne, you know, like we do. Well, I, I, yeah, I think it's a, it's an awareness issue too, but it's, it's more than that. Um, you know, when we set up um, COCO, I think during that year, there was, um, $30 million worth of venture capital that went into the whole continent of Africa. Yeah, I think it was something like $5 billion last year. And so that's only like eight years or something, right? But um, if you're doing um, deep tech, you know, you talk to the VCs of the world and there's a clear divide between 90% you know, of them don't touch hardware because it's bloody hard. Yeah, it's really hard. You know, you've got to build your own factories and stuff. It's really, really hard. And so, you know, if you, then, if you then say, okay, look at those that are doing emerging market venture capital, Right, that don't like hardware, and it's more like ninety-nine percent. Yeah, and so, so I did, I do think that the, um, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, importing or decosting solutions from the West um, into into emerging markets that happens. There's very little, um, I think, there's, there's inadequate first principles 
invention, R&D, and building of solution that is targeted to the needs of consumers in this part of the world. And so, you, you know, we, we, we took a very first principles, let's understand what the customer really wants and then build that for them, rather than, um, you know, let's take um, something that's worked in, um, you know, in the West um, and then try and find a way to make it cheaper or less safe um, and de-cost it um, uh, and, and subsidize it. And, and fossil LPG is a good example. You know, it's only really scaled in middle income nations like India, Brazil, Indonesia because of massive and sustained government subsidy, right? And, and uh, that's how they've solved the affordability challenge in wealthier nations. Whereas governments in, in, in this part of the world do not have the money to be able to, even if they wanted to subsidize fossil gas, they do not have the money to do it, right? And so it's been out of reach, that, that tool. And uh, yet, they, you know, yet, yet clearly there's an affordability challenge for sort of modern energy. And so, you know, we said, look, rather than, rather than de-cost the thing and make it, you know, you know, crappy, pardon my French, but make it sort of low cost, um, and and not really durable and you know breaks in six months you know that's one way to solve the affordability challenge or rather than you know rush into subprime consumer lending in order to spread the you know which is which is what what some of the solar guys have tried rather than do those things um, the third answer and I think the right answer is to harbor uh, to, to 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 harness uh, global carbon markets and use them to share the value of carbon within consumers at scale. Right, so we've got a funnel of money from carbon markets that's going into the hands of Kenyan households at scale that enables us to solve this problem, even in households that are earning fifty to hundred dollars a month in household income. They are our customers; they're buying fuel from us every day. That's been fundamentally enabled by carbon, and uh, and wouldn't be possible without it. Yeah. So, could you talk a bit more, perhaps, about the the way that carbon markets can have an influence on the the pricing and the availability of of the, uh, the equipment that you can provide to households. Um, I can't remember the figures, but I remember seeing it seemed to be a, a pretty significant help for, for households that might not otherwise be able to afford this sort of equipment. You know, when you're thinking about affordability, there's, um, if, you're a, if you're a low-income household in urban, in, in say Nairobi, there's three dimensions to it. There's the, there's the cost of the appliance, there's the cost of the fuel, and then there's the bundle size in which the fuel is made available. Yeah. And so they're the three sort of dimensions that you've got to get right. You can't choose two out of three, you need to hit all three, right? Um, low cost fuel that is delivered in small bundle sizes um, with an appliance that's low cost as well. Um, so pretty significant challenge um, when you're talking about, you know, a, 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 a really high quality appliance and fuel that uh, has a price that fluctuates um, uh, and, and uh, you know, it's a challenge that the LPG, the fossil LPG guys have had is, um, you know, how do you make the fuel available in small bundle sizes? Because the minimum, the minimum refill bundle, the six kg cylinders that they have is about $15 in Nairobi today. And so if you're, if you're a telco, you know, telcos in this market, the, the dominant one is called Safaricom. It's a, it's a Vodafone uh, subsidiary. And uh, uh, basically their most popular bundle size for selling airtime or data bundles is 20 cents. Right? So if they had a minimum bundle size of $15, their revenue would fall off a cliff because it would become unaffordable. Why? Because nobody's got salaries, nice, nice neat payments at the end of the, the month. People are buying, are earning their income daily. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're self-employed, right? Or they're earning the income to the day, you know, wage laboring on a daily basis. And so they're, they're, their expenditure needs to also be 
um, basically daily or weekly in smaller bundle sizes. And so how do we do it? Um, so the, the form factor of how we distribute the fuel is through this network of high-tech fuel ATMs. Yeah, so we have uh, now about 1,300 of these high-tech fuel ATMs in, inside. Um, think of them as sort of unbranded 7-Eleven type corner stores, right? Like if you go into a you know, 7-Eleven in, 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 in New York or London, you'll see a cash ATM, right? It's the same sort of model. So we drop this machine in the corner of the, of the store. It's about the size of a, of a tall, thin Coke fridge and 65 centimeters wide, two meters tall, right? And we punch a hole in the wall that enables our fleet of smart micro tankers to refill the, the fuel ATMs, right? So there's a fuel line that goes in, a vapor recovery line that goes out. And so that's how we achieve the proximity uh, so this dense network of these fuel ATMs is within a short walk of everybody's front door, right? And that's the whole point. If you're if you're selling um, Coca-Cola, beer, cigarettes, rice, sugar, maize meal, right? In the mass market economies and in, in emerging markets, you need to be within a short. It's a convenience foot re, foot based retail play, right? And so how do you get this flammable liquid in small bundle size within a short walk of everybody's front door? That's the fundamental last mile problem that we're solving. Um, it's pretty easy to get a flammable liquid to a petrol station, but getting it through the last mile, that's what took us five years to crack, you know, and it required building this whole new suite of last mile fuel distribution and then use technologies, right, in order to make it work. We've had to write a ton of software around, um, you know, how it's a wicked logistics challenge. These ATMs have, have, have 350 litres capacity and we have trucks that visit them every day. Right, and you can't have bigger tanks because you've got a little, little tiny, tiny space in these shops. Right, mm. the ATMs are a significant part of the shop. So some of them are holes in the wall type shops. Right, and so, um, and then, and then fuel is a morning and evening lines business. You know, we have seventy percent of our fuel is sold after six p.m., which is logical because everyone's coming, coming back from work. They're getting their fuel. They're going and cooking. Right, and so, so there's just a lot of, um, a lot of problem. You simply cannot solve this, this, this fuel um, availability. Um, uh, you know, fuel uptime, we call it, in terms of, you know, the, the ensuring that none of the, the ATMs stock out. You can't solve that without technology. We have these 15 sensors inside each fuel ATM that are setting a real-time data heartbeat to our network operations center. Think of a, a telco knock that's monitoring its, its space stations, its towers. Same idea, right? But, but our baby towers are these fuel ATMs so that we can see, you know, ethanol vapor content. We can see, you know, if someone's trying to shake it, we can see if it's on mains, uh, electricity, if it's on its, we have two-day battery backup as well, right? And and and, uh, and of course we can see real-time inventory levels. We can we can display uh, the behavior change messaging around uh, cooking tips and 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 uh, fuel conservation tips, you know, as the fuel's being dispensed on the actual screens. You know, so there's a ton of this stuff that's controlled centrally. That's why we're called Coco Networks. It's this dense network of uh, agent stores, you know, small business partners of ours that have this machinery we, that we own and that we service like a like a renewable fuel utility that ensures that this fuel is always available, that our brand doesn't suffer from stockouts, et cetera. That's basically the play. And carbon, you know, carbon fundamentally um, plays such a massive role in ensuring that the um, that the the appliance is affordable, ensuring that um, uh, as a really as a really concrete example right now, uh, you know, Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, uh, that, that's that's driven up fuel prices everywhere. You're seeing a lot of um, uh, you know a lot of uh, noise in uh, rich countries and poor countries around you know how do you how do you deal with the consumer impact of spiking fuel prices, whether it's British gas prices or whether it's uh, you know whether it's uh, Kenyan kerosene prices. You know, right now the government of Kenya has a 50 cent per liter subsidy to 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 cushion 
the consumers from the impact of Putin's war in Ukraine, right? And right now, cocoa has a carbon discount to cushion consumers, right, from the impact of Putin's war in Ukraine. Right? So this smoothing function around this sort of this bundled um, carbon and fuel uh, uh, business that we have, this this bundled platform that we have, enables us to, um, you know, to delight customers, to serve them every day, to make them happy, right, and to, to fundamentally use the fuel on a daily basis, even as commodity commodity markets go haywire um, in in the real economy with regards to fuel, uh, even as you know food prices have, uh, I think the flour price here, the wheat flour price here has gone up eighty percent in the last six months. I mean, people are doing it really tough. You know, carbon fundamentally helps us lower the cost of living for our customers. You know, that's how important it is. And uh, and for us, you know, increases in the price of carbon that we achieve directly translate into lowering the cost of um, of basic of basic energy services for consumers. It's this direct and causal relationship that's quite unique. A really interesting way to look at it. Um, now, I've, I've heard you mention before one of the the key points of difference of cocoa is you know particularly in the african market is is you have really good customer service um yep. and and so do you see the carbon financing that you receive as a way to, to really support that pillar of, of your business yeah i mean it's so what do we mean by customer service um we have a we have a call center we have a field-based customer service team we have an agent network management team um right so so think of like um if you're familiar with how um, mobile network operators work in emerging markets, it's quite similar to the commercial and operational footprint. Um, except, of course, we're not we're not moving a digital commodity; we're moving a physical flammable liquid <laughs> safely in, into into the into the extremities, right? And ensuring that, uh, you know, but but um, so so you have to do that extremely carefully with SOPs that we've written with standards. We've actually written the national standards in Kenya, under which we're regulated. You know, and, and that, that that process itself took two years. Right, it's 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 nuts the sort of uh, regulatory work we have to do to, to operate, but it's right. It's the right way to sort of build an industry sustainably safely, and and uh, and so customer service, yeah, it's it's um, it it's a uh, it, it's about, uh, you know, when you think about um, what moves a new solution, uh, sort of a, a, how do you how do you get a technology to go from sort of early adopters to really you know like we've done sort of crack across the chasm into the mass market of, of adoption. Um, it, it, you really need to get that word of mouth engine rolling on the ground. You know, in, in Nairobi today, in mass market Nairobi today, we are a top five consumer brand, right? A top five consumer brand. You knock on anybody's front door of any of the low income houses where the bottom 70% of incomes live, knock on anybody's door, whether they're a customer of ours or not, and they'll know us, they'll love us, they'll have a very good opinion of us, right? So that's that's possible because um, if, if there's been a you know a challenge, for example, if if they've left the um <laughs> they've left the appliance outside and you know it's rained and then the mineral fiber sponge that absorbs the ethanol right, that's one thing that happens right they forgot to bring it inside um, now that's a one dollar consumable fix you know and, and we do it within our repairs and maintenance center in our network operation center all they've got to do is call us up and say look something's gone wrong we say don't worry we'll sort it out. You know, they can drop it off at their agent location. We do the reverse logistics. We take it back. We fix it. And and what you've what you've done then is you know a customer that's been you know potentially quite frustrated now becomes your biggest advocate. And guess what? You get their neighbor. You get their sister. You get their mum. You know you, you've you've got three new customers out of one relatively low cost but sensible active brand building and customer service. That's what we mean. When it, you know and that, that's a that's a critical part of how. Um, of why we're growing vertically is is uh, is this heavy attention to 
um, focusing on the customer, solving their problems, you know, and, and definitely um, that, you know, that, that definitely carbon as a, as a, as a material sort of uh, revenue source of the business uh, that enables those sort of investments to be made. Definitely that's, that's uh, you know, I, I don't think it would be possible without it. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it just strikes me as amazing how much infrastructure and work had to be put in before it could be, as you mentioned, the switch could be switched and, and, and this service be provided. Um, yeah, and now that it is, you know, you've expanded into, into three cities, is that right? You're in Nairobi, Mombasa and Kisumu at the moment? Yeah, and then, and then our first uh, rural network uh, in a place called Siaya County out in Western Kenya, um, about, about an hour and a half uh, outside of Kisumu, um, we are doing the um, first principles R&D work to, um, to um, learn through doing about uh, you know, tackling, tackling this solution beyond the big cities as well. Um, and we think that there's a real opportunity uh, to, to do that. And so far, so good. CI is about, uh, you know, it's about uh, a week and a half old, and we've already got a thousand new households in, uh, in a place that is, uh, you know, rural, um, but, you know, it's also got no trees left because of charcoal. It's got 0.42% forest cover uh, wow. as a result of charcoal deforestation right now. And so people actually don't, you know, it's, it's like sort of Haiti. You know? People sort of have this idea that, um, that the rural areas, uh, you know, folks will just go and collect wood. But if you've been to Haiti, um, it, it, you know, there's no wood, there's no trees. And so the cost of charcoal in Haiti is actually higher in the non-urban areas because you've got to smuggle it in via the boats from, from Dominican Republic into Port-au-Prince and then truck it up, up country. And so you've got additional logistics cost. And so, you know, we learn a lot through doing as we go into these new geographies. But yeah, we, we do think that there's a, um, like, like we've committed to do in, in uh, Rwanda, which is a more densely populated country, um, we do think there is a, Sort of a universal access network is out there that we can we can solve this problem properly, um, mm. not just for for the not just for the urban citizens. Of course, the the logistical challenges of delivering this service in in a in a rural setting versus a, an urban setting would be, I mean, to me it seems like it'd be a much more challenging scenario. I mean, how are you sort of addressing the issue of I guess population density? You know, might be an issue being yeah. able to deliver services. Viably yeah, context. You, you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's it's um so an evolution of our field distribution hardware is going to be part of it. You know, we've built this um ATM form factor for dense urban environments with a five thousand liter micro tanker that delivers every day, right? Well, you don't need that um, in a village. You know, in fact, that's probably silly because you don't have the space constraints. Um, wh what I think it looks like, just to paint a picture, and we're not there yet, but in, in rural. But um, you know, if you've, if you've ever seen those pictures of the early days of the rollout of the um, you know, of, of the petrol industry uh, in, in America in like the 1920s and stuff, you see this sort of general store in a village. Oh, uh, sure. And it's got like an underground tank and a little pump like that. And people yeah, would bring yeah. their, you know, bring their, their, their buckets, their, their jerry cans to get their yeah. kerosene to go back and light their lamps. You know, that, that's sort of what it looks like. I think it's probably something like a you know, instead of a 350 liter above ground ATM, it's probably more like a 3000 liter below ground tank, right? Properly, properly set up just like you know, in front of a general store in a, in a village. And there's actually, there's a solution that we've, um, that we've built and tested. I'm not sure we've publicly announced it, but there's a sneak peek. It's, it's working, it's fun. Uh, we're calling it Coco Everywhere, but it's basically a, um, it's a solution that enables a small entrepreneur to um, have a dozen full canisters in their shop and customers bring their empty canister and then they use an app, the handheld device that we give the entrepreneur and it basically swaps the empty for the full 
okay. right? Whilst whilst because uh, you know, our customers they, they all have a an account, right? We have visibility on, on, on all of our customers, just like a telco. Um, and, and there's an NFC chip in the neck of the customer that's actually coded to the customer. So when you dock it in the fuel ATM, it says, hi, David, please enter your PIN, checks the clouds, says, okay, you've got 300 shillings worth of code credit. Uh, you can buy 30 cents or 50 cents. So that's how it works at the moment in the form factor. We've been able to take that same idea of, um, of maintaining that we set the fuel retail price through, through, the, through the platform, through the wallet, right? But maintaining that same low fuel retail price, but enabling us to extend the reach of our fuel ATMs and run this sort of canister swapping approach um, and so, yeah, you can see, you know, I can see that sort of working where you'd have a, you know, a, a hub and spoke approach where you've got a you know, general store with an underground tank, and then you've got these other entrepreneurs coming in, you know, on motorbikes, for example, with, with, you know, 15 canisters and they're able to go and then basically service their village. And so the guys that are doing the transport are really the guys that are doing that as a business opportunity. That's, yeah. that's, I think where it's going, but, um, but yeah, give us give us uh, you know, give us another year before we've got that operating at scale. Um, uh, uh, it's it's working now at sort of a you know hundred shop scale, but but uh, to really sort of systematize that and push that out over the whole network and to enable us to sort of triple our fuel retail points of presence without necessarily tripling our ATM network capex. That's 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 what we're trying to solve for. I see, and I guess I mean this sort of this makes me think of uh, I mean you've mentioned you have aspirations of going international beyond Kenya. I mean. These, yep. It seems like something that would that would work quite well with with that aspiration. Do you have any updates on on moving beyond beyond the borders? Sure. Um, in January, we signed an investment agreement with the government of Rwanda, um, who really wants to solve this problem. You know, uh, Rwanda is um, quite quite crowded in terms of the, the density, even in rural. Um, they call it the land of a thousand hills, and so, you know, as you take trees out of the hillsides, the, the hillsides degrade, and you're actually you're actually reducing your arable land, right? And so, so deforestation everywhere is a food security problem, right? Deforestation, charcoal deforestation drives food security, but particularly in a very hilly place. And so this is, you know, this is, this is front and center um, for the Rwandan government. They, they, they're, they're genuine about trying to solve this problem. You know, the challenge is that historically, um, you know, governments uh, uh, basically have only had one tool in the policy toolkit to solve this problem. Governments understand they're on the ground. They understand that to um, to beat dirty fuel, you have to you know to beat like charcoal, you have to switch the fuel. And the only fuel, the only modern fuel that's been available, is fossil LPG. But fossil LPG, the policy prescription is massive amounts of subsidy, right? And and that's what's worked in Indonesia, Brazil, and India. If you don't have the balance sheet to be able to fund that massive amounts of subsidy, well, charcoal reigns supreme, right? And so that's the that's what they're grappling with. Um, uh, and so we, we, we basically um, approached the, the, the government uh, of Rwanda uh, in conjunction with our joint venture partner in Rwanda. It's a group called Dolberg Climate Ventures and, uh, and basically said, look, uh, look what we're doing here in Nairobi. We've actually cracked it. It's taken us a long time. It's scaling vertically. We'd like to come and do this in, in Rwanda. But our OCD focus is on lowering the price to consumers of cookers and fuel and so on. And, and, and uh, and so the challenge, you know, it, 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 there are toll gate taxes on pretty much everything in emerging markets. And by toll gate taxes, I mean import tariffs, I mean excise duties, I mean VAT, right? So these are toll gate taxes that serve to drive up the cost of goods and services. And, and of course, charcoal, which operates in the informal economy, doesn't have any of these toll gate taxes. And so whether intended or not, the baseline fiscal policy stance of most African nations is to favor charcoal, right? That's the fact. Versus versus a new thing that's coming in that hasn't got you know specific um, exemptions from those toll gate taxes, and so we 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 proposed um, 
we said, look, we're, we're a sustainable infrastructure investor and developer, right? We build the sustainable infrastructure, we solve this problem. Um, we, we propose to come in and make a $25 million investment uh, into Rwanda to build a countrywide network, um, employ 501 citizens, uh, and uh, fundamentally solve this problem at some scale. And, and we do not want any, we do not want any of your money. Uh, we don't need any subsidy. So unlike the fossil OPG guys, they're, they're basically asking for government money to scale this solution. We're not doing that. Um, but we're saying, please, uh, in return, we'd ask that you commit to 10 year removal of VAT input duties, excise taxes on all the fuel uh, and, and all, the, all the hardware, the consumer hardware, the network hardware, um, um, uh, and commit to not directing sort of export tariffs on carbon credits uh, and very open about how carbon works, right? And, and, uh, and, and uh, basically saying, look, instead of government money, we have a you know, B2B um, solution we're selling to corporates in, in, in Western or, or in wealthier markets, and we use that money to, to, to solve the affordability challenge Right. And so this is this is a mechanism. This is by design for, as a founding thesis. It's working out scale. Um, what do you say? And they, they looked at it 10 ways to Sunday uh, and took it all the way up to the cabinet and to the president and formally approved. So we signed that uh, with Rwandan Development Board, the Ministry of Infrastructure, the Ministry of Finance in uh, January this year and uh, are now putting putting pieces together. So yeah, it, it will be the next uh, the next country we go live in next year. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a big process to it won't take us the same number of years as it did in Nairobi, but it's, it's not a small undertaking to build a network. There's a dozen different work streams, a couple of hundred people that we have to hire, train, bring on board, you know, software integrations, um, infrastructure preparation, um, you know, quite, quite a, you know, quite a lot of implementation of the government agreement in terms of the national standards and a range of other things that have to be written fast tracked. You know, that's, that's basically the process that we're taking. And, and in fact, when engaged with similar um, government uh, negotiations around agreements in, uh, you know, in half a dozen other countries. Uh, that's that's basically the play. And so, if we can if we can remove those toll gate taxes, and we've committed in the agreement to pass them 100% to consumers in the form of lower prices, and then obviously use carbon to, to lower prices even further, right? And, and, and you know, if we can get those agreements with governments, then that determines our order of travel, because there are 60 low-income trop tropical forest nations that need these networks. There are 60 of them. Yeah, it's, it's uh, and so we, we have to be able to um, figure out how we can, um, you know, basically serve the, the, the maximum number of customers in, which, in, the, in the minimum amount of time, right? And, and, uh, and yeah. you know, energy is the least free market sector of them all. There's always taxes and subsidies based on what's in favor, uh, in favor at any one time. And, and so this is, a, this is for, for sort of forward-leaning governments that are genuine about actually solving the problem rather than just talking about it. Um, we're open for business. We're happy to come and invest amazing I'm, I'm conscious of time i think we've, we've sort of reached the end but i mean i have about a thousand more questions which i'd love to ask but um we'll have to leave it there i, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and answering these questions and, and just sharing with us the uh, your insights into the the opportunities and the challenges and, and cocos and, and your own journey so thanks so much for coming on thanks david cheers